because when I was sugaring, I was a Harvard College sugar baby. So I had a lot of guys in my area. A lot of them are also, you know, powerful men. My two sugar daddies are actually prominent politicians. They're yeah in in the u.s politics so they both have wikipedia pages <laughs> and with them i felt like i never saw them as a boyfriend and i didn't see them as like just like clients as well i did have some emotional feelings for them some kind of endearment yeah they're like my boss that i could have sex with it's really interesting welcome to beyond the matrix with your host adric super have you ever wondered if this is all there is in life? What lies beyond what we were made to believe? In this podcast, we're going to uncover real human stories of those who have taken courage to go off the beaten path and live in full authenticity. We're going to challenge what you believe is possible, fuel your spirit with courage and heart with warmth to fully live your truth. So buckle up and get ready for the ride beyond, beyond the matrix. The Welcome back to Beyond the Matrix. We have a very special guest for today. I'm really excited about her because she came from the same hometown as I do, from Medan, Indonesia, and she has come such a long way. She is a writer, storyteller, technologist uh, with a degree from Harvard with a major in neo-shamanism. And she has lived quite a wild life from working at startups and NGO to experiencing psychedelics, sugar dating, and doing a write-up and covers for a wide range of topics like underground culture, sex, cryptocurrency, you name it. And her work has been featured in big media companies like Vice and The Edge, and she recently won a deal from Penguin to work on her first uh, debut novel. And there's just a lot that we want to cover within this short one hour. So we're going to try to squeeze as much as we can. So without further ado, please welcome our guest for today, Alice Huang Wijaya. Hello. Thanks so much, Edric. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, that's such an honor for you to think so highly of me because I think equally highly of you, you know, like coming from Medan, I always see, oh my God, what is Edric doing? Where is he now in the world? So exciting, so inspiring. Uh, you thank know. you. No, it's a pleasure. And there's always something so nice to see someone who came from the same place as you did. And then also taking off the more alternative path. Like if I look at our peers, my peers here, I just recently came back from a high school reunion. Like most people have come back from studying overseas, continuing their family's business. Like they, most of them have kids. Well, uh, as we like, we're off to our own little path, exploring the world and like, trying all these like wild experiences. So it's a really nice to see someone else who came from the same place and like experiencing all these things as well. And so my first question to you, Alice, is, you know, like you grew up in this type of culture that's pretty conventional to me. And what made you think that you, what caused you to venture off this path and left the matrix and went off this really alternative lifestyle? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, looking back to when I was a little girl, I think I was, I grew up a very quiet girl. I was just like the sensitive type. I read a lot. I was just like, 
maybe if you in in this today's understanding maybe you would call such a kid is like the highly sensitive empath or something so i was absorbing a lot of what's untrue in my family and you know my family i would say this is a typical rich chinese indonesian in medan but also as i travel i see a lot of the similar patterns in my uh, other ethnicity friends from other ethnicities for example i have a friend in montreal she's a white anglo-saxon protestant family and i was like sensing the same darkness when i was in her house you know basically yeah the typical you know uh father who are rich and working a lot and absent from the childhood and then the mothers who are you know they do yoga they look hot you know milf kind of mother they do plastic surgeries but they have very low uh self-security they're perpetually unhappy they don't feel like they can connect to their husband in that deep level and then the husband will have mistresses it's almost like a given because you're rich you can afford it so it's almost like the wife will like close one eye towards these extracurricular activities as long as the husband go back home then they think it's a responsible dad so growing up i, I felt like i was absorbing a lot of this sadness from my mom from everyone and also like you know missing my own father you know like serious disconnect i couldn't talk to my dad and all i know he was just like an atm you know i go to him like mm. money comes from him that's it you know some father and father love and man's love means money so i guess all these things make me feel like i wanted to rebel and i had yeah the privilege and the opportunity to you know, first I studied in Singapore. Of course, I was smart because I read a lot. And then I, I won a scholarship to Singapore. So that was like my first time actually disengaged from my parents when I was 15 and living like in a like dormitory with my friends. Uh, and then I won another scholarship to Harvard. So I went to the U.S. to study. And yeah, all this uh, afforded me with the opportunity to break away from my parents uh yeah a lot of my other friends don't have the same opportunity so i think yeah going overseas just like detaching from our roots is very important for us to like you know find what is true to us and uh the new values that we want to grow for ourselves away from our parents uh i study mm. okay the major is not neo shamanism the major is anthropology so i went ah. to liberal arts college and anthropology is the study of people the study of culture and then i was focusing on neo-shamanism yeah they was in in harvard yeah so i was studying all the like uh healing modalities or rituals of altered states of consciousness that were developed in conjunction with the psychedelic revolution in the 1960s after the vietnam war era and then after the in uh, invention of lsd and all that and you know the i think the discovery of eastern spiritual teachings by white people you know mm. uh they all like kind of create a new counterculture like kind of the psychedelic <laughs> revolution culture and yeah. from that emerges like uh, people who are into healing into spirituality but in a new age way you know not no longer just subscribing to you know specific church or religion or yeah. doctrine all the hippies that we see in bali essentially exactly yeah <laughs> all they all come from yeah, yeah between the west and the the east and the west yeah yeah, yeah. it first came from the psychedelic revolution and it also traced back to you know the technology revolution because 
uh, some of the history says actually the whole Silicon Valley was originally tripped on mushroom and psychedelics and then they started yeah. dreaming about how to disrupt our world but then when psychedelic got banned especially because again with any kind of substance there were abuse in the 60s there were cults forming so they were banned for a while and during those prohibition people come up with different other ways to induce altered states mm-hmm. yeah like you have it like your yeah your sweat yeah. lodges your ice bath whatever yeah your orgasmic meditation Yeah, thanks for uh, correcting me. I was about to ask you, like, wow, Harvard has a major on neo shamanism. Like, that was really interesting. I would love to get into that. Like, I'll go back to. Um, but even so, your your choice to focus on neo shamanism during your study, like, that's not a really common focus area for a lot of people. And I'm curious, how does your You mentioned, and thank you for being vulnerable about your past and how your relationship with your parents affected who you are, and you wanted to re, um, rebel, uh, rebel against them, and that's to all this alternative paths to, I guess, to find yourself uh, in the midst of this chaos. And how do you see your past relate to your interests? What picks you about neo shamanism at that point? Mm. So yeah, I think when I first got to Harvard, I took anthropology just because of the opportunity to travel because it's study of culture, study of people. So by that default, then I can apply for grants to study any culture I want. So I got to continue to travel. And then actually on, in my sophomore year, I was diagnosed with bipolar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had psychosis, which is a break from reality, just unprompted, you know, it felt like I haven't even taken any substances back then. Maybe a little bit weed uh, uh, in my sophomore year, but then I, I got into a state where I felt like I could speak to the spirits. I could, you know, access that kind of like altered reality, having lots of powerful, uh, powerful emotional waves that I couldn't control back then. And then I had mm. to be hospitalized in McLean Mental Hospital. Which uh, is like one of the most famous in the U.S. Lots of famous people went to McLean Mental Hospital, and yeah, from then I become like very interested in you know altered reality, in like mental illness, in yeah. spiritual crisis. Because I don't just want to believe that okay, this is just you know illness, you know, is something yeah. bad. I just have to take drugs. I I see different lines of interpretation of mental illness, including from the shamanic. Perspective, anthropological perspective, and not just psychiatric perspective. And it does say like some people when they have like kind of a nervous breakdown, that's you know their body to to tell you you are experiencing spiritual crisis that you cannot suppress some things no longer. You know, like something is just not right and so misaligned that you have mm. to you know you just have to be so chaotic you know to yeah. To 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 shake it out, you know, to 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 force you to address it, basically. Yeah. So yeah, that started my interest to then, you know, focus on these topics for my studies. Yeah. And so yeah, you mentioned that you were diagnosed with bipolar. When do you already have like an inkling that you had that, or it's only becoming apparent when you were diagnosed? And I'm just, I guess, I'm curious. Was this something you were born with, or was this something that was made because of the environment that you grew up in? Hmm. 
from the like the latest like definition from the clinical psychology, a clinical psychology or psychiatry, uh, bipolar disorder like kind of a chemical imbalance in your brain. So some people are more sensitive to it, just like you have diabetes or something. So when you are stressed, you know that chemical imbalance will be triggered, and then mm. your response is like that. But from so. To, it's one, yeah, it is like, you know, triggered by the environment I grew up with, with all the stressors, but it's also natural because my siblings don't have it. They don't react that way. Mm-hmm. So definitely there's also something in me that make me very susceptible to, to break from reality whenever there is any stress or anything that's like not aligned. But if you only see it from the psychiatry and like the chemical imbalance, it feels like, oh, that means you are sick. But if you see it from like the shamanic perspective, actually, then these people are what we call maybe empath again, <laughs> you know, empath or people who are just very highly sensitive. Maybe their energy field is like so easily, you know, uh, tap into like other people's frequency or you're just like that kind of person. So if you don't know how to like manage it well or you don't know how to guard your energy field, then you can get imbalanced very easily. So right. there are two lines of interpretation and one is more favorable because, you know, from the cultural and shamanic perspective, lots of this kind of people, you know, in like African tribes, in Indonesian tribes, they're, they're usually assigned the role of the shamans in the tribe. You know, if a kid can break into this kind of like break from reality, they will be like chosen by the elders to to you know to be the the medium <laughs> in all the like in all the spirit possession ceremonies but in in modern society then they're just incarcerated given mm. like heavy tranquilizer just like you know the spiritual crisis is just like being pushed down you know and so i think with whether i want to see it as a supernatural powers or bipolar i have to manage it that's for sure absolutely so man- yeah, even from the psychiatric perspective, you say like you live with bipolar, you manage manage bipolar, not like you cure it, you know. So, mm. yeah, but I, I don't like the stigma that it's illness or a bad thing, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah someone, I have to manage my superpower, you know. <laughs> I love that you kind of shifted the lens of something that's so negative around bipolar to like a superpower. And someone wants to very spiritual professor actually told me that there's no such a thing as mental health issues. Uh, what it is, what it is, is the lack of our language and understanding of what people are experiencing in their psyche. They're only what's happening is they're going through a spiritual em- emergency where they need to be held, they need to be grounded to the present so they don't get lost in their in their head, in their mind, their thoughts, because that's what triggers someone into depression, bipolar and all of that. Um, I don't, I, I've never really faced like a severe mental health issue, so I don't know how to comment on that, but that's just interesting to see something that's been so negative with like a new light, just like what you um, kind of highlighted earlier. And, and you mentioned that during, after you were diagnosed with bipolar, you had a several episodes that made you have to take sabbaticals during your time at Harvard. And you went on quite an adventure, like taking all these like crazy jobs, working at a massage parlor, being a traveling dancer and, and a lot of different things. So maybe you could share a bit more about 
how do you first like how do you navigate this episodes that you had during your break and maybe share some of these adventures that you did during this the sabbatical yeah so i guess my bipolar seemed like quite severe but that's also because i refuse to take my medication regularly again because all this medication gives me so much side effects like for example stopping my period completely and then when i complain to my doctor he'll say things like oh so you want your psychosis or you want your period why am i supposed to like make that choice and it's just like so fucked up so i refuse I tried to find different kind of holistic healings and again this pushed me like further and further to neo shamanism and you know diet and this brought me to California so I was there for a while just you know nomading under a combination of student visa and tourist visa and uh, for the first time I think I was like actually had the liberty to do whatever I want without the pressure of like you know high achieving wealthy family you know like my other friends from harvard they had to go internships or you know it has to be like the finance consulting or if you are a filmmaker you have to make it into like sundance or something yeah. <laughs> but for the first time i was just like nomading because i was just like trying to trying to survive i guess and yeah i work in a haunted house basically like construction work <laughs> in a haunted house <laughs> in um it's sacramento california it's like up there a little bit in the north and then uh, something's happened uh, 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 at that haunted house that you know the the whole team disbanded and then i follow a girl in the crew she her boyfriend had a marijuana plantation in humboldt california wow. <laughs> so i followed up north and then was just like cooking weed with like you know really strong hippies like very very true blue hippies up north and yeah they have like jars and jars of weed we're just like smoking and picking weed all day long and the pay was really good for me especially because uh, that one is uh like you can earn up to like 10 grand 20 grand working like 30 or 60 days yeah which was wow. like a lot student yeah yeah so i was like whoa that's like nice and then i got like too tired of just like picking weed and then like i would travel down south again and then i yeah went to san francisco and um Oh, I was also dancing because I'm a dancer. It's been just my hobby, you know, since since high school. So I've been like um, training dance quite ser- seriously, you know. Even some points in my life, I thought I wanted to be a dance teacher because I just like mm. it so much. So I think I'm not that talented, but I just really like it. So I was also dancing West Coast Swing at that point. So West Coast Swing comes from the West Coast in the United States. So through this West Coast Swing community, I got to crash at people's places. I go to dance conferences. And then I was uh, helping out a friend who is selling dance shoes at conferences. So he's starting, wow. they were starting their like dance shoe company. So I like latched yeah. onto that team. So I got housing benefits, you know, I got some like minimum wage and I got to dance and compete and dance and just live from conference to conference. So yeah, that was quite epic. And then I, you know, finally settled a bit in San Francisco. Uh, I met a boyfriend from a dance community and he's a Facebook coder. So he's quite loaded. So I just like, like him and just like, no, I just also liked him, but I also needed housing. So then he said, yeah. okay, you can stay with me. So I stay with, with him for free. And then in the meantime, I, uh, oh, there's an NGO next door. 
who is set up by the wife of like somebody who was on iTunes founding team. So I I work for that NGO. It's an environmental education center, and I was doing some video editing just part time for them. But I didn't have to pay rent, so I continued dancing, working for NGO, and living with this boyfriend. And this boyfriend happened to be a conscious polyamorous person. Uh, and he's been, you know, studying a lot on these things. And you know, San Francisco is almost the mecca for anything yeah. polyamorous. Was that your and first exposure to polyamory and pos- sex positive and open relationships? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah, it was really eye opening, and I was so lucky to have it in San Francisco in my formative years. And yeah, it's almost like uh, like swallowing the rat pill and. Uh, yeah, initially, of course, I need to like really lots of adjustment, like difficult to stomach. But um, then I also stumble into the orgasmic meditation community also in San Francisco. And from there, yeah, I got more deeper and deeper into practice about what it means to open up sexually mm. and romantically and kind of deconditioning myself of a lot of you know, blueprint I knew of growing up about, you know, if you love somebody, if you have sex with somebody, then it has to be followed by this, 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 this marriage and all that. So mm-hmm. I was deconditioning a lot from that. And I think my partner, he made it easy. This this boyfriend was actually a special one. I think looking back, I was like, damn, why did I even break up with him? Because he was like so, you know, accommodating. He knew I come from a very traditional monogamous background. So he said, okay, let's just close. You know, he was okay with being close with me sexually. But then he teased me out. He will like brought me to raves, to... um to like bizarre festivals like sex positive festivals to dungeon events to to swing activities but as a couple so i got a teaser of what it's like he was like holding my hand the whole time like showing me the wonders of the world (laughs) yeah and then yeah we broke up because then oh i had to go back to school finally my you know, I was like, okay, this is now about time to resume my study. And wow, then, do you make long- a goal? Do you make it a goal to just experience as many things as you can, be as well as you can during this break? Because that was a lot of things that experienced. And like, how was that in a year? Yeah, about a year plus. Yeah, year. Yeah. So was that intentional, or you were just naturally attracting all of these things to you? I don't think that was intentional. <laughs> I think I also attract. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I have a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm quite wild. I think that's my true nature, based on astrology, at least. That's why mm. when I read astrology, when I was a little girl, I was feeling like, huh, this is not me. Because, like, the astrology says I'm a very wild and exciting personality. But, you know, I wasn't, like, this very suppressed when I was a little girl. But mm. I guess when, yeah, when I was like, okay, I'm on my own in California trying to figure it out, then I naturally <laughs> just, like, try everything. <laughs> You're a free bird, free off from the cage and like went to explore all of this from life and taking it all in. Um, Can you actually give the listeners a little bit more glimpse into quote unquote the sex cult or sex community that you were a part of? I think that's something that's really new and and wild for a lot of people to hear about. Like, what is it like to be part of this community? What do you guys do? What do you guys do with each other? (laughs) Yeah, so it's called the Orgasmic Meditation Community, uh, developed by a company called One Taste. Uh, actually, there was a 
a very unfavorable documentary launch on One Taste on Netflix. It's called Orgasm Inc. Uh, but I would like to, you know, back to defer from this documentary. I think there are a lot of good things that come out from the community, even though there's also a lot of abuse. So basically, orgasmic meditation is this meditative practice developed by Nicole Deodon. So she patented 10 steps around clitoral stroking basically the practitioners men and women women they have the clitoris they will bear themselves and then lie down on a yoga mat and then the partner whether man or woman will stroke their clitoris in these 10 steps uh, exactly uh, in the duration of 15 minutes so the goal of this practice is kind of goalless you're not supposed to achieve any climax you're not mm. supposed to label things you're just supposed to be present with all the sensation and like the connection between the clip and the finger and appreciate anything that comes and arise uh, during this practice and at the end of the 15 minutes you close everything you exchange uh, you know, some kind of uh, like conversation about what the experience has been like for you and your partner. And then that's it. That's called orgasmic meditation. Um, so yeah, the the purpose of this practice is really like, I think teaching people the basics of Tantra, which is a lot of breathing, a lot of being present, a lot of noticing uh, whatever sensation that arise, you know, whether it's shame, guilt, or euphoria, joy, and not not blame it. Some women, they cry during OM, orgasmic mm. meditation or OM. Some women, they reach ecstasy. Some women, they're just like, just like very flat, very neutral. And that should be fine, you know. Sex shouldn't have a, had this like agenda. Oh, you have to like mm. have it. This is climax and that's it. You know, it doesn't have to have a porn plot line. You know, it can be anything that you want. So this is the purpose of this practice. And just like drilling it, to all the practitioners for us to practice it every day um, make us be more mindful lovers i guess you were practicing it every day yeah when i was in the community it's almost like a church of orgasmic meditation wow. some people <laughs> live together in a commune we open the morning with like circles of people oming and they don't like sharing wow i love that there's a you turned into a verb like opening a circle of people oming and yeah i wanted to just pause slow down here because to a lot of people this is very groundbreaking what you just shared earlier the idea of this sex having this plot and a goal especially for men what they had in mind when they have sex is like i need to get into penetration and then anyone ejaculate and that's the, that's the end goal they have in mind when they want to have sex so the idea of laying down or no like having a woman lie down and like just going through this ritual for 15 minutes for getting into this altered state without the any particular goal to have any sexual agenda that is quite groundbreaking i think to a lot of people and was that how was your first experience when you what because i'm sure we all grew up with this idea in mind with all this how media brainwash our ourselves to think of how sex should be like and then for the first when you experience this for the first time just allowing yourself to be touched and going through all this motion and ritual what went through your mind and what was going on for you yeah, so uh, honestly i grew up what i learned about sex was also from porn movies so my very first few sex is like definitely just the normal one and 
I felt like I, but by that time I joined orgasmic meditation, I had had enough experience to, you know, can say confidently with any kind of guy, I know how to hit my first climax. Like I knew how to reach climax from penetration in that way, in the same narrative, but it got boring, you know, like I kept thinking, oh, with the same partner after three months, I'll get bored because the sex is just like that. And then when I try OM, actually my clitoris was almost dead, you know, because I just never really touch it. I didn't care for my clitoris. So like mm. I almost didn't feel anything and sometimes it's just too sensitive. But then after a while, after like trying to stroke more and more and more, suddenly it kind of like melted, almost like melts. And this is the experience that's true to many women as well. They say like, you know, the OM practice really awakened their clitoris. And then, yeah, I think as a woman, I kept feeling like, oh my God, the the guy is waiting so long, just like pleasing me, like what's going on? I cannot mm. receive so much, you know, like I, I need to bend over, you know, like this has to happen now. But with mm. Omar, I was like being taught to like just surrender and yes, like just receive. And, mm. you know, it was just like, yeah, putting myself in such a vulnerable moment where somebody is just like looking at me and trying to give me pleasure and love. There was like almost too much to bear, you know, like, um, so I had some moments where I was like crying. Yeah. yeah. And had all sorts of like altered states of experience, like seeing colors, feeling like all sorts of sensation in my body, like cold and heat. Yeah. Almost a little bit like taking acid just from orgasmic meditation. And it is regardless of the stroker, like, some strokers i'm not even attracted to them physically you know they can be like an older man or what but then yeah you know the, the connection that we had during that particular stroking was so powerful to me you know and then i was so grateful for that experience so yeah almost just wow. like a very interesting yeah practice. that's beautiful because i know for a lot of women they've been conditioned to please the men and even in sex, a lot of women have to fake orgasm just to please the man. So I think being in that place where you could just receive and to be to be treated with respect and to experience pleasure for just solid 15 minutes without having to give back and just fully experience and receive, that could be a very profound experience for a lot of women. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And so, so now you're back to... Harvard after your break and then you jumped into journalism was that your first that was like the you chose that as a career I <laughs> I wonder why why do you specifically chose to jump into journalism well I was always I, I had always been I have always been a writer since I was a little girl I like reading I like writing I always blog. So even before Instagram, I was like blogging a lot. I was a little bit famous as a Indonesian blogger because I got into Harvard. And that's why journalism felt just very natural. I thought I knew I want to create content. I, I knew I wanted to write. And then journalism also gave me the opportunity to keep experiencing life. Yeah. And especially because I joined FICE. You know, they made me do the craziest things as well, you know, and everything else, like all my interest seems to be validated by FICE. Yeah, <laughs> all the sex underground, psychedelics. It was just like such a natural choice. So, yeah, it's correct. I did choose journalism as a career, even though I've had like different other ways to make money. 
Yeah, and even actually from Vice, I started sugaring <laughs> because initially it was an assignment for an article what it's like to be a sugar baby because like Vice is like this gonzo wow. journal practice, right? For example, they threw me to an empty island, another story, to survive with six items uh, and then wow. another like asking me to be sugar baby. So I opened an account and then I started and all this. But then... When I started, uh, you know, going on dates and assessing the whole situation, I was like, oh my God, this makes so much money, you know? <laughs> I could make so much more than being a journalist. So I don't, uh, I just do <laughs> They made you become a sugar baby as part of the assignment. Yeah, yeah, just for an article. And then as I tried it, I realized, oh my God, these things like really paid a lot. So why not? I just do it, you know, why not? <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you choose Vice because of, because you knew that you're gonna, they're gonna make you do all these things because they're known for all this crazy reporting that they did? Or do you, do you, do you see this coming? Like all these assignments that they threw at you? Yeah, I think partly, partly. I mean, like I was like thinking what kind of journalism will appeal to me. So instead of like applying to something very, okay, I think a lot of my friends were like going for Bloomberg or maybe like CNN, you know, more like kind of a proper journalism outlet, like the kind of like Vice appeals to me more or Fox even like something that's more like millennial, edgy and accessible because yeah, my topics of interest are also like a little bit more edgier and not mm. so proper. Mm. Yeah. Now that you've mentioned it, you need to tell us more about how you survived in an island with the six items. Yeah, there was like a story that I did uh, for Vice Asia. So they were like saying, it's not even my idea, it's my editor's idea. He was like, why don't we do a survival story? Like, because we always have this like, you know, in the house games, you ask your friend, what would you do if you are stranded on an empty island? What items would you bring? Why don't we like enact this for real? So yeah, they told me to find an island. Oh my god, something's like falling. Yeah, they told me to find an island and then try to like survive. And I was like, oh my god, okay. So this sounds really scary, but also cool. And then I uh, ask around and I ask. So there are a lot of people who are doing survivalism. They're called survivalists. They have been mm -hmm. featured in. Discovery Channel or National Geographic. So these people really develop the skills that are needed to survive on any kind of environment. So you can throw them into the middle of a desert or a, like ice tundra and then they can survive or like a tropical island preferably. And wow. then yes, there's a community that's called that the sole purpose is to survive. Like they're called the survivalists. Like there's a community yeah. for this. Wow. Yeah, just like people, I think lots of them also do maybe rock climbing or what, just like lots of Americans are doing this because they also believe in like, oh, global warming and all that. And they're actually legit scared about uh, the future of humanity. And they say, we need to be able to survive just in case apocalypse come upon us. I think they're quite right. So, okay, so the survivalist talked to me and then he said, oh, you don't need anything on an island. You just need a knife. I was like, no, like you cannot just like give me a knife. Did you not see my YouTube videos? Like, you know, I use the knife to like chop the woods and like make this and make that, like just like from a single knife. I was like, no, 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 give me more. Okay, so he gave me like a tarp, a tarpaulin for water and then like uh, a rope, 
uh, what do you call it? A spool of rope and then a knife and then a fire starter. And then I chose a jug of water. And then one more item because I gave myself six. Actually, I should have brought like protein bars, but I, I brought a book, Power of Now. <laughs> <laughs> Good choice to be stranded in an island with. And how long were you there for? About three days only. Yeah, that's okay. all I could survive. Because, okay, so he told me in a tropical island, the first thing you must secure is the coconut because coconut will give you a nutrient and also hydration. So he told me how to climb coconut tree. And it's really possible, actually. You can climb coconut tree with your bare hands. You just wow. need to you Did you? Like, squeeze. Yeah, he taught me how. And like, I could wow. do it. It's really, it's hard, but it's not that hard. <laughs> There's some technique to it. You have to like tie ropes like in between your like your uh, ankles so to keep you steady. And then you have the coconut body, uh, the coconut tree, and then you kind of hoist yourself up with your. Oh my god! Like squeeze. Wow, up. they really turn you into an OG island girl. <laughs> <laughs> Not the Bali model kind, but like a real raw and like wild <laughs> island girl. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh yeah, but then when I was on the island, then I chose the wrong island. It's uh, in the Philippines, uh, El El Nido, around El Nido. Uh, the island was bare of coconuts uh, because it, they were already harvested for the tourists around. So that's the crazy thing, right? They they like dropped me on the island and said, "Oh my god, there's no coconut." So I had nothing to eat, literally nothing. Oh, shit. It was so I only had my water and then my book. <laughs> I was just sleeping the whole day. And then I tried to like poke around with, you know, I, I get like a branch and with my knife, I tried to create a spear like in, <laughs> in the And were you by yourself this whole time? Oh, actually, I had somebody who was like taking my picture. Yeah, okay. but he's not helping me in any way. Seriously, he right. didn't. <laughs> like in his so family. you only survived on water? That's your yeah, means on of sustenance. Water. Wow. And then I tried to like, you know, spare fish with this like uh, thing that I made myself. But of course, I couldn't get anything. Maybe if they had given me more time when I was so desperate, then maybe I could do something. You know, I, I wouldn't okay. know. On the third day, I was like, okay, if I give up, time's out. But you survived. Yeah, I survived. Yeah, well, yeah, that's I pretty wild. <laughs> that's wild. Yeah, like camp. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, now you got to tell us about your sugar dating experience. Yeah. Oh yeah, so sugar dating is yeah, another crazy thing that I did because like I thought I think this has to do with OM as well after orgasmic meditation, after all the deconditioning, then it's easier for me to experiment or to try something that is taboo. I start mm. questioning why not, you know, like, mm. yeah, you know, like my, I, when I grew up, my father had mistress, like basically he had sugar baby. Then why not I become the sugar baby instead of the wife role in society? You know, what's mm. wrong with that? You know, I start questioning, like, I feel like the sugar baby, they also got the money and they got more freedom. They're just not, they just don't have the face, the legal face, but why do you even want the legal face? You know, that kind mm. of thing. So, yeah. See that itself is very interesting because sugar dating is something that is very frowned upon most in most communities and for you to be able to really question that why is that so and 
unlearning that and kind of saying fuck you to people who like think of this as a taboo and like looking down at these things and like throwing yourself into this and really experiencing yourself that is that is inspiring oh thank you <laughs> yeah no i feel like because i knew how miserable my mom is and i know how miserable all other wives whose husband has mistress or sugar babies outside are so like i'm like what's so cool about you know marrying somebody only then you know like people will have this something else and what's so uncool about being the sugar baby themselves especially now in social media gen z and all that it's being made cooler and cooler now we have only fans and this only fans people they're also almost celebrities and it's just becoming like more and more normalized so mm. the orgasm practice was a, a lot of help because even though sometimes we can intellectualize some concepts and understand at the brain level our body still have a lot of uh, repulsion maybe or being triggered uh yeah. when it's sex and relationship so uh the the practice the embodied embodied practice from orgasmic meditation was really helpful to decondition me at the body level so i didn't yeah. have a lot of like uh, knee jerk moments mm. when i'm wanting to boost sexual experience yeah yeah and, yeah and i must add especially giving a little more context becoming from medan the culture kind of conditions you to want to care about what people think about you like that's all the parents here do they want to buy all this like fancy cars and bags because they care a lot about how people think of them and the status and and how they're perceived by their friends so especially for you to be able it, i think it takes a lot more to decondition yourself from this type of mentality from thinking from not giving a fuck about what people think about you that takes a lot and so how was it like to to be a sugar baby yeah i think it was great again i was comparing it because again at that time i was also already a polyamorous person in a way because of my ex the san francisco one so actually had a a boyfriend also at that time but i also had two sugar daddies who are long term and the boyfriend was a waiter <laughs> so he was kind of broke but then i had like this two sugar daddies and then he uh, yeah he was just like chill about it and he had tinder dates and the sugar daddies were very very gentlemanly of course i picked the ones that i like so the way i see the sugar dating website is almost like tinder you also get to swipe left and right on the daddies you know mm. yeah so it's just like the ones that you find attractive of course there are less attractive people on sugar dating website than there are on tinder and then there are some people there that if not for the money you would swipe them left but because of the money you okay give you uh, chance there's that additional layer <laughs> yeah so, but i mean it's just like i guess the way the world is you know like okay this guy is like yeah i can do him yeah of course especially if you give me like a few hundred bucks <laughs> by the end you know like mm -hmm. that kind of mindset and some of them actually because when i was sugaring i was a harvard college sugar baby so i had a lot of guys in my area a lot of them are also you know powerful men my two sugar daddies are actually prominent politicians they're yeah in in the us politics so they both have wikipedia pages wow. <laughs> and i don't anything secretive i don't know if they're secretive about you know their activities but both of them were not married when i was with them one was like he said he was going through like separation and with them i felt like 
I never saw them as a boyfriend and I didn't see them as like just like clients as well. I did have some emotional feelings for them, some kind of endearment. Yeah, they're like my boss that I could have sex with. It's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't just like, you know, with boyfriends, I usually am more emotional with boyfriends. I'll right. be like, what? With them, I wouldn't do any of these things because then, oh, my pocket money wouldn't come this month if I just like throw crazy shit. Right. So there's a certain kind of constraint in terms of like what can you explore with them? Like you can't explode emotionally to them because there's this concern of like, oh, would they like still finance me? Yeah, you will behave a little bit more. But at the same time, I also like had moments where I feel like I miss them and I will text, hey, are you coming? Like, this month are we seeing each other you know so i feel like definitely they're like a mix between boyfriend and client so that's why also actually sugar dating is really not prostitution because prostitution is like paper sex encounter it's very mm. straightforward just like one hour two hour you know and you right. know what you're while in this sugar dating relation you actually you have a relationship with the men so it's beyond yeah. just a transactional relationship where yeah. you you develop feelings for them yeah. to a certain extent yeah and then the reward is also like negotiable i guess because some people they just want gifts you know some people just like oh just bring me travel expensive traveling all the time some people want like i, I was asking for real pocket money to my venmo you know untaxed <laughs> back then so <laughs> i yeah so everybody has their own arrangement and some guys actually resort to sugar dating exactly because they say they cannot handle girls being too emotional so in a way sometimes actually it's true my sugaring relationship they were very stable and not so much like normal relationship so maybe i should be paid you know maybe i should be paid maybe i'm that kind of girl it's just it feels the money is just so stabilizing for me it feels like mm. I don't know. I always have this feeling about girls have it like uh, worse than men because we have biological clock. Mm. Because you know, we're just so disadvantaged in a lot of different ways. Even yeah. in career, we we have like all this like gender ceiling that you guys don't have. Mm. And then even if your mothers, we will be punished if we want to go back to workplace. If we're mm. you know like we won't be promoted as much. You know. So by all this means. Since you guys are more capable to earn more, you should pay us more, you know? <laughs> and we have all this biological clock thing. For example, if I'm like with a boyfriend and he's just like stringing me along for five years, don't give me marriage, you know? And then yeah. I'm getting old. And then what do I get out of it, right? And then it's like yeah. giving me all sorts of anxiety while this guy is like, oh, okay, I'm done with you. I'm 60 now, but I can still procreate. Then like move on to the next younger lady. And I'm left like not fertile anymore and like alone and like cannot procreate anymore. So by that, you know, state of the world alone, I think sugar dating should be actually the standard <laughs> for any relationship. <laughs> I can afford it. Like just I your time, that. your biological clock time. I think so. It's, I love it's that a- provocative perspective. Like you're really pushing gender, the, the, the bar of gender equality to the next level. It's not about just like getting women on par, but like women have to be compensated extra because of all those things that it comes with being with a woman comes with being a woman i mean it's true like women come with all of this you know 
disadvantages, quote unquote, uh, like something that will hold them back a little bit more biologically and all this uh, cultural yeah. stuff that put a gender ceiling on, to, on them. So there's a lot that women have to go through that men currently don't have to. So there's yeah. some merit to what you were saying before. And in terms of ending the relationship, okay, so what happened to these two relationships? I'm very curious. How Did they just like drift apart? Is there a transactional, like a contractual agreement when does this relationship end? No, I just graduated. I graduated and then at that time I had another episode, uh, another psychosis and then I was depressed and then I actually had like a, about like six months left on my OPT but I didn't want to use it and was getting fat from the depression and yeah, I just wanted to go back home to be close to mm. my family, just feeling so didn't have the drive to hustle you know like you know in the cold or whatever just wanted to yeah i was on another episode of depression so went back home and then yeah i guess i yeah i didn't know what prompted that last episode before i went back to singapore but maybe sugaring had something in it maybe even mm. though i didn't feel like it was hurting me but maybe it was i don't know i felt like i was crossing a point where some other ladies wouldn't and uh, I guess coming into terms with what I had done because then uh, all my new lovers or anyone who might marry me in the future will have to sit with this fact that I I'm, I was a sugar baby before and I you know already engaged in mm -hmm. this thing or maybe I don't know but or it's just like a seasonal thing but yeah I had another episode I graduated so then I came back yeah, but actually, during the last spring break of my senior year, there was like a sugar dating story that came into my lap that became the material for my fiction novel. So that was Are you like, working on yeah, right now? Yeah, yeah, that was quite insane, an insane story. Yeah, mm. it's separate well, from two sugar deaths, yeah. Yeah, well, talking about your depression, maybe we can kind of go full circle about how we started off with your bipolar disorder. And so how have you been navigating this? How has your journey been so far since your, uh, your first diagnosis? And I know you recently have been sitting with a lot of ceremonies, different kinds of plant medicine, and how has that shaped? How has that contributed to your healing journey? And... Yeah, how has your journey been so far um, after all these years dealing with your um, mental health? Yeah, again, I think uh, the longer and longer I have it, the more I am convinced that every psychosis, every break from reality was really a spiritual crisis and... Mm. Being bipolar means I have this capacity to tap into the unseen world and to get disturbed more ener energetically or to affect others in my environment with my moods. And I see this in my mom as well. Sometimes she will like cry out of the blue and all that. They say bipolar is genetic, right? Mm. And even now, I, I can feel it already when I can actually tip into that altered states when I suddenly get like overwhelmed with powerful waves of emotion or anything, then I knew I just had to 
find a safe space to express it, to ground it, and then like maybe exercise, maybe do yoga, eat, always you know do all the things that I need to to ground myself again, to center myself to reality. But mm-hmm. it is just very easy for me to to tip off, you know. So from my ayahuasca and all the plant medicine, I feel like. Lots of these experiences with this plant medicine mimic my spiritual crisis. So the more I take the plant medicine, the more I'm comfortable with altered states of consciousness. And I knew this is just the moment. This is just the phase. This is like, yeah, this is the process, you know? Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I'm hopefully my my future aspiration is to be a medicine woman myself. <laughs> oh, no way. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, one one day I would actually try to. I mean, I will write books about psychedelics and all that, uh, and altered states and mental illness. But I also want to actually be a real shaman. And I've met a few shamans here in Thailand who were diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar, and all these things, being mentally institutionalized a few times. And now they're shamans and they're perfectly okay. You know, they're just never had anything. So yeah, I yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah and it's, it's just a change of perspectives, it's a change of lens and how you see it, right? Like it could be the same symptoms in terms of what experience, but the way you see it could completely change your relationship to it. Like if someone views it as a mental disorder, then they will send you to uh, like a mental health institution and the way they treated you will not be the way that you will want to be supported and helped as opposed to when someone sees it as a spiritual emergency or you're going, you're experiencing all these things instead of like trying to run away from it. Like you say in the beginning, instead of trying to make it disappear completely, you're actually learning how to be with it instead of pushing mm-hmm. it away. And I think that's what the psychedelic experience has gifted you, which is the, familiarity of this experience this being in this altered state you're developing this sensitivity to it and you're developing a deeper connection to this dimension to the point where mm-hmm. it doesn't cause that um huge psychotic break for you yeah it, it can be controlled and it's not so fearful i think the point is like i have to make time for and space for my emotions so mm. you know normal modern society you like work like a factory or like a robot or a machine if you like have like need moments to just like lie down and cry and express through movement people think you're crazy yeah and then say oh take this tranquilizer what numb yourself like go back to work bam 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 yeah just like time your but no now i'm like i'm honoring this my body wants to express my emotion wants to let out i need to let it out and Mm. after work i'm actually feeling more grounded at ease a deeper version of myself will emerge and actually it will aid productivity also you know yeah Mm. i think some people even though maybe she will need maybe longer time because she's making space and time for her emotion but when she returns then she'll be like 10 times more productive than like just a robot you know like yeah Mm. yeah just like clocking in the hours every day but not inspired you know when she's working that's Mm. my yeah. And Alice, one thing that I wanted to call out is like how open and candid you are when you're sharing this experience um, in this podcast, but also, you know, we've been friends and following you on social media, like you've been very transparent about your 
bipolar situation, your sugar dating experience, your psychedelic experience. And I'm curious what inspired you to be this open to share your story. That's one. And second, like, what's the response been from people who have been following you? Uh, I think one, because I was always a writer. So it's quite natural for me to express like my thought process, like a diary to the public. Uh, it's almost like an identity that I already carry since I was a little girl. So uh, it's equally important to my identity. I think without my without sharing to the public, I also feel incomplete, you know? Yeah, it's just the mm. way I am. Maybe it's my calling. And then secondly, actually during my bipolar outbreak, every time I, w- I would go super crazy on social media because I was like totally detached is uh, mm. imagine you're taking acid and then you're playing on Instagram when you're on acid, you know, or on right. ayahuasca. I <laughs> well, wouldn't be able to type to begin with. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I was also like, didn't really type well. I was just like, just like baby blabbering, just like crazy shit on my social media, posting pictures, whatever, attacking my friends. Like if I have like some jealousy about this friend, I will attack her or him. Like it's just so crazy shit. So, a few times my social media actually exploded, just exploded. <laughs> just We were like, what is happening with Alice, you know? And then I shut down and then come up with... So every single time I felt like I died, you know, public-wise, but then nothing happened, <laughs> you know? Like, I survived that. And when I return again, some friends who are true to me will, you know, reach out and ask, are you okay now? What's happening and all that, you know? Mm. So... So I have, uh, I'm a little bit more shameless in that sense. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people are so like concerned about their social media image, right? I like absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I shame myself so many times. Shit on social (laughs) media, like crazy, (laughs) literally crazy woman on social media. Nothing happened. Right, right. Because a lot of people, I feel like, attach their ego in terms of how people see them to their survival. You know, like. If I put myself out there and people see me this way, then like in terms of their nervous system and their their response to it, like it's like, oh shit, like this is like it can kill me. And that's why people are so afraid of uh, putting themselves out there. And so it's so commendable that you put all these things that a lot of people, they're, they're quite taboo to a lot of people for people to really see and learn from. And I'm curious about your parents specifically, like did the stories ever get to them and how did they react to it? this well yeah we never really had that conversation and i think they kind of knew at the back of their minds but they prefer not to address it so yeah this is also something that's quite worrying because my book is coming out this year and it is gonna be autobiographical fiction so people will know it's based on my true story and a lot of my parents Mm. shit are as well and but it's all fiction, so I don't think they can legally sue me. But, you know, I don't know what the implication will be. And, you know, like in Medan, people care about face. And if this gets yeah. translated to Indonesian. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm still quite scared about this. But less and less scared. I I really have right. my intuition that maybe sometimes I underestimate my own parents. I think they have their mm. own wisdom to learn and grew with me and... I, they must have known. They must know what I'm writing about, and they just choose to not, you know, stir the shit and just like let me be. Yeah, and you know they don't have social media, so they prefer not to know. And 
I think what they're asking from me is just now to be nice to them, to you know, mm. yeah, just have a more loving relationship with them, you know. Mm. Well, speaking about your novel, it's called The American Dream, and it's coming out. You said this year. Maybe you can give the reader, like the listeners, a little bit of a preview of what it's going to be about. So yeah, it's uh, about sugar dating, about two Harvard sugar babies who, in the senior year, the spring break of their senior year, stumble into a sugar dating arrangement that's proposed by this uh, wealthy elderly benefactor who wanted to kill himself. So he was proposing us to be his sugar babies uh, just for one year arrangement. And by the end of the one year, we had to kill him. And then we would um, he would pass us all his assets, all his inheritance. So that's the premise of the novel. And I would have a lot of flashback to my upbringing and my childhood and what made me a sugar baby in the first place, you know, at Harvard. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. I'll be one for sure to get a hold of that book when it comes out and to dive deeper into your fascinating wildlife. And Alice, mm-hmm. we've almost come to the end. So I think just to wrap us up, you've lived so many crazy lives, so many experiences. And after going through all of this, I wonder what is like one, one key takeaway, one wisdom that you can leave the listeners with in terms of what you learn about life, what you learn about yourself and what do people be mindful of? Mm. One key takeaway, I think the motto of my life is truth. You know, this is Harvard motto as well, actually, Feritas, Latin meaning truth. So I think that's why we're put on earth to, you know, to learn about our truth and the truth will continue to evolve, but we cannot stay away from truth. If we are not living in our truth, then we might as well not live, you know. Why would you live your life if you're not living your truth? And discovering your truth is a messy process, you know. It's not, yeah, it's not nice. It's not soft. It's not always pleased, you know, like it doesn't like fit in perfect boxes because everybody is different. If you think about it, everybody is unique. It's very special, like God's creation, like they keep saying, all these like churches keep saying God's creation is unique, right? But in order to like get to your unique truth, you you need to be messy, you need to be angry because that's why everybody is different, you know? If everybody is the same, there is no friction, there is no anger. Anger is when you end and I begin, you know? That's when, you know, we, we are different. That's why there is some kind of friction and we just need to learn how to live with all these different unique identities. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Beautifully say, Alice, thank you so much for being on the show today for, first of all, for just living your truth, for navigating all the mess to uncover your truth from being with a sex call, getting thrown to an island, to sugar dating, to doing psychedelics and sharing your story and your truth with us that inspires all of us to also live in our truth. So thank you very much, Alice, for being on the show. And I will see you all in our next episode. Thank you. Thanks, Cedric. Thank you so much for doing this.